Hi, everybody. My name is Frankie. I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Frankie. Uh, I have a sobriety date of January 27, 1997. And for that, I'm very grateful. Um, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. And I used to hate it when I heard people say those words because I'm like, why? Why would you love this? This is awful, you know? I got here, I was 26 years old and I was just, you know, way too cool for what was happening here, but also not cool enough to figure out what was going on in my own life. And uh, this seemed like a good alternative according to my therapist. So, um, you know, I checked it out. <laughs> um, when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous and I walked into my first AA meeting, I, I clearly and most, and so vividly remember seeing all these people smiling and laughing with each other. And I'm like, these people are alcoholics. Like, what do they have to smile and laugh about? You know, like it was really confusing because I, I knew how I felt. And this was a state of emergency inside, you know, and like <laughs> these people were not acting as though there was an, a state of emergency happening. They were just like joking and, you know, I didn't get it. But something happened when I walked into my first meeting and it happened almost instantly. I walked in and it's like, as much as I did not want to talk about God, think about God, or even connect or acknowledge God. When I walked into my first AA meeting, I literally broke down into tears. People were walking up and introducing themselves to me, smiling, welcoming me. And I just started crying because for the first time, I think ever, I felt this weird safety. And I had never felt safety before. And I didn't know what it was. And I didn't know what was indicating to me that there was something safe here, but I just knew I felt it. I felt it in the vibration of the humans around me. You know, um, I didn't plan on staying sober. You know, I just planned on checking it out. Um, I knew that with alcohol, like there was this logical part of me that knew I was an alcoholic, but I didn't necessarily think I was that bad as long as I didn't drink, <laughs> you know, like I knew if I drank, it was going to be bad, but I can be an alcoholic and maybe just not drink as much. So I tried those things, you know, taking a drink, not taking a drink, um, swearing off, you know. Uh, with and without a solemn oath, doing more physical exercise, reading inspirational books. That was my jam. You know, like I'll just read these inspirational books, you know, the four agreements. Why would I need 12 steps? Right. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but when I did come here, like I said, I, I, I felt there was something going on. And so me being a curious person and also very analytical, I had to investigate, you know, investigation has been my friend, you know, I'll check it out. Um, the world that I came from, the way I felt about it, and I don't know if anybody else has ever felt this way, but I remember telling my first sponsor, like, if you had my life, you would drink too. If you had to go through all the things that I went through, you would need a drink too. And now you're telling me, okay, well, the drink just goes away and things are going to magically get better. She's like, no, they're not going to magically get better. They're going to get worse unless you work the steps. And I was like, oh, God, okay, whatever. But let me back up for a minute, you know? There's a part in the big book that says, um, we invariably find that we had made decisions based on self, that in the past we had made decisions based on self, 
which later placed us in a position to be hurt. And, you know, Corey was talking, and thank you so much for sharing. Corey was talking about that selfishness, that self-centeredness. And in my mind, my alcoholic mind likes to twist things and turn things and, you know, find a loophole in just about everything. So my loophole was you're selfish because you'll take, you'll lie, you'll cheat. You alcoholics are like that, right? But I'm not like that. I'm not selfish like that. I'll give the shirt off my back. I don't lie. I don't steal. You know, I'm not selfish. But that is an indicator of selfishness. Because here I am comparing me, thinking about me compared to you. And that's all about what am I? Who am I? That's all self. And I didn't understand that when I first got here, that that is self. And all of my addiction, all of my alcoholism is based in self. And what I really wanted for me was to just be okay. I came from this world, you know, um, where I grew up in a household where my, I usually give like the cookie cutter version. So here's the truth. Truth is I grew up in a household where my stepfather liked little girls and I was a little girl. So from the age of two to 12, this very angry, violent and sick human being did things to me that you shouldn't do to a little girl. And I also grew up in a very religious household. My religion was different, but the message was, if you're good, God will love you. And if you're bad, God will punish you. And I was a child. So in my logical child's mind, I made decisions that this is happening to me because God, for some reason, hates me. I'm not good enough. I'm not perfect enough. And God is punishing me for some reason. And I literally was always looking for a way to be perfect to do everything right, to be good enough for God to stop letting this happen to me. At 12 years old, I told on him, they sent me to foster care so he wouldn't go to jail. In my logical mind, I decided I'm not even worth taking care of, not even worth protecting. I had a mother who is extremely cruel. I would get sick. I had a lot of health problems as a kid. And, you know, I remember laying in my bed. I had chronic ear infections. I had chronic bladder infections. I had, I was always sick. And she would just tell me, why do you have to be so needy? God, what is wrong with you? Maybe if you were better, maybe if you were cleaner, maybe if you were you, blah, 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 this stuff wouldn't be happening to you. Is God punishing you? And I remember laying in my bed when I was about six years old and I had yet another ear infection. And she was tired of taking me to the hospital. She told me, I'm not taking you to the hospital anymore. You're just trying to get attention. And I laid there for hours with a fever, my head throbbing until my eardrum burst. And I would look forward to every time the eardrum would burst because the blood would come out and the pressure would subside and I could go to sleep. And I knew that's all I really wanted to do was go to sleep because when I was conscious, it was painful. I had my ears operated on, voila, it wasn't me. I had a problem with my ears, but now the operation was too expensive. You know, it was always something, no matter what, I always felt like there was something wrong with me. I was needy, I was a burden. And those things didn't leave me when I went to foster care. Those thoughts, those feelings, those decisions about myself followed me 
And they did later place me in a position to be hurt because if I don't trust anybody, if I don't believe that I'm worthy of anything, I am going to act in that manner. I am going to make new decisions, which will follow up what I feel about me. I wanted to be oblivious. When I was 14 years old or 13 years old, I went to high school, my very first high school dance. Um, it was great. It was the 80s. I mean, anybody who was there knows 80s music was the best music. It was the best era. I had my first little pair of candies, high heels on, you know, and um, those people who are old enough will understand what I'm saying. You know, I had my first mini skirt on. It was a sin to wear mini skirt, but I got to wear one, you know, now. And I walked across that school campus and a boy talked to me and his girlfriend found out and she came and she beat me up and she broke my arm and they took me to the hospital. And the doctor said a couple of words before he gave me my first pill. He said, I'm gonna give you something that's gonna make you feel better. And he gave me something and it did nothing for the pain in my arm, but what it did to my head started the journey, you know? I love how Corey says that alcohol was my answer because it started with pills and then I couldn't get them because the doctor was like, your arm doesn't hurt. Your cast has been off for six weeks. What did he know? But he wouldn't give me any more pills. So I had to find a solution, right? And then I found alcohol. And from the moment that I found alcohol, I knew for the rest of my life that was going to be with me. I needed that because for some reason, when I ingest alcohol into my body, it does something unexplainable. It makes me feel okay. It makes me not have so much guilt or shame or self-hatred. It just shuts all that stuff off, right? Helps me to take a deeper breath. And even if you don't like me, it doesn't matter as much anymore. <laughs> you know, like it just eased my pain. And so I chased that as hard and as fast as I could. I ended up running away from, from home. Um, I ended up getting taken back to my mom's house with my stepfather. And he walked out onto the, um, the porch behind me and he said, I, I just want you to know now that I have you back, I'm never gonna let anybody take you from me again. And I remember this feeling of like doom and dread. And by that time I had become a very nervous kid, you know, very uncomfortable in my own skin very afraid of everybody and everything. And I'm not exaggerating that even a little. <clears throat> my mom left him. We ended up going and, and living in Redlands, California, which is an armpit. Um, but, you know, it's got some fruit trees and I like oranges. So that was, you know, that was, that part was okay. Um, I needed to get out of there. I ran away. I went to LA. I lived on the streets. I did what I had to survive on the streets out there. I connected with the punkers, you know, and um, I got a family, a family of people who would stand by my side and protect me and take care of me. And I was this little runt and they all took me under their wing. And we did a lot of really bad stuff, but I was always protected. I felt safe. And so I grabbed a hold of that. But I was cold a lot. I was scared a lot. I was angry a lot. And as the things got worse and worse, the situation that we were in, the anger and anger that I got. I ended up going back home to my mom's again and 
During this time, I met my higher power. His name was Michael. <laughs> he was going to save me from everything that was me, right? And I didn't choose somebody who was kind and nice and healthy emotionally because I didn't deserve that. So why would I choose that? Any guy who was nice to me, I'd be like, what do you want? <laughs> When's it going to, what are you, what are you out for? When it, when it, you know, it's really bad. My alcoholic alcoholism has an ugly face. It's an ugly, mistrusting, terrified face. And the big book talks about how the very fabric of my existence is shot through with fear. And I know this to be true because fear is the thing that evil and corroding thread that I'll be like, everything's fine. And then I'll get afraid. And then all of a sudden everything's unraveling and going bad. And I'm like, whoa, 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 what's happening here? You know, it doesn't matter where the fear comes from. Even me being 25 years sober, when that fear shows up, I have to stop and go, okay, hold on first, pray. What do I do here? You know, like get on my knees, call the sponsor, do some inventory. Like I have to use my tools because it doesn't go away. It's something that just follows and kind of stays there and it gets quieter. The bigger God is, the quieter my fear is, right? But the bigger I get, which fear is me, it's my ego. My ego, the gasoline is fear, right? So when my fear starts happening, um, the ego starts getting in and going, I'm going to protect her. I'm going to take care of this. We're going to be just fine, right? I mean, here's, here's how bad my ego is. Like I've never shared this before, but my name up until I was 15 or 14 years old was Franny. Franny. They called me little Franny. It was so, even you're laughing, like I get it. Like it was so embarrassing, right? There's nothing scary about Franny, right? So I was like, forget this. My name's Francis, so I'm going to be Frankie, right? That's so tough. And then people will be like, oh, she's forced to be reckoned with. Her name's Frankie, right? <laughs> so stupid, right? But those are the kind of things and good ideas that my, my, my brain comes up with. Like, let's just change my name. Would I move to a new place and be a completely different person? And then I'll have enough alcohol where I can be crazy and people will be like, what? chick man she's she got it going on until they eventually look at me and they go we cannot party with you anymore because you are too crazy and you make bad things happen people get hurt when we party with you and I'm like okay I'll just calm down they're like no we have heard that before please go away leave me alone you know and little Franny's inside like I just want to have friends right and Frankie's like fuck them you know like but that's my alcoholism. There's like these two totally different people in here that feel to two totally different ways. And depending on whether God's in charge or whether, you know, my ego and I am in charge is how I'm going to show up to this world. And by the time that I got sober, I had enough damage done that I didn't have any more answers. That guy that I was about to tell you about, Michael, he beat me for a couple of years and three months after my 18th birthday, I broke up with him and he did not want to break up. And it was a violent, nasty relationship. It was a scary guy. And I broke up with him and he walked into my bedroom that night. He said, I love you, Frankie. I hope you're happy here. Watch this. And he walked up and he put his eyes right into my eyes, face right here. He smiled. He pulled a gun out. He put it to his head and he pulled the trigger while I was looking him in the eyes. And you know, the messed up thing about that is, I mean, it was bad. Like it, it changed something inside of me. And what I wasn't afraid of now, 
I'm afraid of everything and everyone, and I don't trust anyone at all. But it broke me. And the only thing that helped me have a moment of silence was alcohol. God hated me. My family didn't want me. Whoever is supposed to say they love me, they're just going to hurt me. Everyone is scary and not trustworthy. And I am alone. And that is exactly what my alcoholism wants me to be, alone. 25 years sober, it still shows up and it's like, hey, maybe, maybe you should just be alone, right? My alcoholism still has that voice. I did things to try and make my life better, right? You know, they talk about taking a trip, not taking a trip, blah, blah, blah. I had a kid, you know, if I have a kid, this is going to be something that's going to love me and no one can take him away from me. I had a kid and I wasn't able to take care of him and I gave him up for adoption because it was better than having me as a mother. I was a single mom. What a bad idea this was. I love him with every inch of me. But he needed something that I could not give and I gave him away. So the next time I'm going to have, and I, and I hate saying this because I feel like it just makes me look like such a piece of crap, but it is the truth. Our stories disclose what it used to be like, what happened and what it's like now. And this is what it used to be like. I had two more children. The next time though, I had a better plan. I married a guy within 90 days who couldn't beat me up and I got pregnant. Like that's the better plan, right? Still not a healthy relationship. And by the time I ended up, uh, the, the day before I got sober, I had gotten fired from one more job where I had punched another boss and, um, and he got knocked out accidentally and, um, and he called the police and they 86 me from the, that another job. And I'm standing in my front yard and I just lost it. I lost it. My therapist was like, you should go see AA. I went back home. I lost it. I landed in my knees and I was screaming up at the sky. I, I don't love me. I don't even like me, but everybody keeps telling me you do. If you do, you need to help me. And that's the thing. That's how miraculous and easy it is. It doesn't make too hard terms of those who honestly seek him, right? I'm sure I bet you butchered that. But what happened was I ended up in an AA meeting somehow with people that I don't remember how I met and we were not friends the day before, but somehow I'm in this AA meeting with these people. I'm like, and I'm not sure if I wanna stay and uh, God, God uses my ego too, right? Like I had quit drugs when the guy shot himself. So I'm like, I'm eight years clean, not sober, but eight years clean, right? So I walk in and I realize there's this pecking order hierarchy. These people that have more time seem to be more respected, you know? So I'm like, oh, I got eight years clean. Don't mention anything about the alcohol whatsoever, right? <laughs> right. And uh, they made me their secretary of the very first meeting I ever went to. And I was like, I have no idea what this means, you know? And some guys like, don't worry about it. You just show up every Wednesday night, you know, you'll be fine, right? So that's what I did. I showed up every Wednesday and I was secretary. And then 90 days into it, it was like my ego, my gut, they were all fighting, you know, and I realized like I cannot walk through and live this lie. And so I was like 90 days. All right. So I stood up to get my 90 day chip. Right. And I take my chip 
No one like punched me. Nobody kicked me out. There were no sighs. There was just this huge round of applause, right? People just screaming. And I'm like, geez, like, don't they realize like I don't have eight years anymore? <laughs> you know, <laughs> And um, somebody walked up to me after and they were like, I'm so glad that you took that chip because I thought if that's what eight years <laughs> looks like, like, I don't want any of this, you know? <laughs> And I got honest, you know, when they talk about how the truth will set you free, it did. Like, and that's what I found, like working the steps and acknowledging these things and talking to people like the truth really does set me free. And the lie and the fear, which is a lie, it, it keeps me in bondage. I got my very first sponsor. I don't remember her name. She told me she was my sponsor. And then she was like, okay, what you need to do is you need to show up to this meeting every single day. And then you can do your other meetings. And then Saturday morning, there's a women's meeting. And within 90 days of being sober, I lost everything. By the way, I got sober. I had a husband and a boyfriend and a car and a house and a job, you know, like, and with nine, within 90 days, no boyfriend, no husband, no car, no job, nothing, right? I had nothing. And I was homeless with my two kids. That's the thing that God kept me, kept with me were these poor two kids, right? And see, again, God knows, I'm not going to fail again, like I did before. So sponsor says, you can show up to this women's meeting. And I show up to this women's meeting. And I sit in this estrogen filled happy box and I'm not a woman person. Like I'm such a tomboy and I'm like sitting there like, oh, it was torturous. Like, I'm just going to be honest, guys. It was really torturous. And I'm sitting in this women's box. <laughs> it's meeting. Sorry. And, um, <laughs> and all these women are happy. And there's this girl with curly, cute hair and she's wearing this fuzzy um, pink Angora sweater. I'll never forget that sweater. And when it comes time for her to share, she's like, and then I went to the hair salon and the girl messed up my hair. And then I went and she did my nails and my nails are all messed up. And I was like, I stood up and I grabbed my kids and I stormed out of that meeting. And my little sponsor comes running up to me and she's like, where are you going? Where I go? And I, I turned around, I looked at her, I said, no, no, you have got to be kidding me. I have alcoholism. I cannot stop drinking. I'm homeless. I have all these problems and this just sitting in there talking about her hair and her nails is her problem. And she looked at me and I expected something else to come out of her mouth, but she smiled this sweet smile with love. And I'm like, what is wrong with this chicken? She goes, <laughs> she goes, honey, don't you think that it's interesting that that's all she has to complain about? And it clicked. Oh my God. I totally want to complain about only my hair and my nails, you know, like, and like I have six months worth of roots here happening, you know, and my granddaughter the other day told me my hair color thing was broken, you know, and so like, like those are my problems today, right? And I, I do have problems. I do. But nothing like being stuck in a bottle. Nothing is that debilitating. Nothing is that scarily um, what is the word I'm looking for? Volatile, right? I can predict within a matter of reason what's going to be the day, what the day is going to be like, right? I can, but once I put alcohol in me, all bets are off. 
I cannot predict, predict what's going to happen. And most likely I won't remember it either. So you're a liar, right? <laughs> but when I got, when she said that to me, it kind of clicked. I need to, I need to put my all into this. And what was told to me by, interestingly enough, my very first big book was given to me by my son's grandmother, who was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I still have it today. She handed me this book when I was 19 years old. I got sober at 26. She handed me the book at 19. It was this blue book. And I like, I remember I said, I love to read. It's my jam, right? <laughs> she hands me this self-help book, right? With all these stories in the back, right? And I read this book. And when I handed it back to her, I said, oh my God, that's such a good book. Too bad it doesn't apply to me. You know? <laughs> and she said, if you ever want it back, you just let me know. And I was like, okay so now here i am 26 years old and i call her i'm like mama you know that book that you gave me you know for like however many years ago she's like yeah and i go i think i need it back now and she brought me her book and it said in the inside have a wonderful journey love nancy and she gave me that book and i still use that book today my very first step was like admitting my life had become unmanageable, right? Powerless over alcohol and life had become unmanageable. That was something that I, was explained to me. You have got to be able to believe this stuff. You've got to put it into your innermost self, right? You gotta concede to it. And concede means to give up to the idea of. You have to concede to your innermost self that you are alcoholic. And I was like, well, what if I'm not sure? She's like, well, then we investigate, right? She also said, I'll tell you what, why don't you do this? Why don't you give this thing a year and do everything in knowing my mind, do everything you're told, even if you don't agree with it, as long as it's not immoral, unethical, right? You do everything you're told and just see what happens. And I was willing to do that. And so without any holds barred, what are we looking at here? Perfect. Without any holds barred, I was in. I was going to give it a year. And I was planning on drinking at the end of that year. But I wanted to see what I could get out of this thing, right? And if I'm a, I'm a woman that if I say I'm going to give it my all, you can bet I'm going to give it my all because I can't stand guilt and I can't stand the lying. So I did. I gave it my all. First step, great. Concede to my innermost self that I'm alcoholic. All right, as much as I can do that, I will do that. And that my life has become unmanageable. That part was super easy. <laughs> there was no question. I'm like, yeah, this part, done, right? Then the second part, is, or the second step, you know, um, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. That was where the stop happened, right? See, the thing is, I could believe that a power greater than myself could, and that's the caveat word for me, could restore me to sanity. But I didn't believe God would want to, or that I mattered enough for God to do that. But I believe that God could, and that seemed to be enough, right? And then the next step, make a decision to turn my will and my life over. And I was confused about this. I thought that at that moment in time, I had to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understood him. 
First of all, as I understood God, he did not like me. He did not care about me. How can I turn my will and my life over to that? I'm signing up for pain. No, thank you. Right? And then I was told, are you willing to allow, if this God could, are you willing to allow it to get better? Yeah, of course I'm willing to allow it. She goes, perfect. I go, but I can't turn my will and my life over. Like, I don't even know. She goes, it doesn't mean that you immediately turn your will and your life over. That is not what the step says. It just said we made a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understood. Just made a decision. How I turn my will and my life, my, how I turn my will and my life over to the care of God is by immediately starting in with that four-step inventory. That is me proving that I am turning my, my, turning my will over is putting my pen at that paper and writing these things, right? With honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. That's me proving. Step five, reading all these things out to somebody else, to, my, to God, to another, you know, to myself, and, and to another alcoholic, right? And really being open to having a different perspective. Because see, Spiritual experience is one of the things that, that we're hoping, or I was hoping to get, have this spiritual experience they're talking about. And all that is, is a change in perception. It was made clear to me, right? So step four, writing. That's me turning my will over. I don't want to write. I don't want to look at this, but I'm going to do it anyways. That's me proving I'm turning my will over. Now I'm going to read it out loud. That's me proving I'm turning my will and my life over. And from these columns in this fifth step, what I'm going to look is a really good and clear appraisal of who and what I am and how and why I work the way that I do. I'm going to look at my fears. I'm going to look at the harms that I've done to other people. And I'm going to continue to turn my will and my life over by becoming willing to let God take these defects of character, even acknowledging that they're there or even being willing to become willing. Right. It talks about that. And then step eight, right? I'm not willing to go to write down all these things that I've done to people because remember I told you in the beginning, I'm not the bad guy, you are. I'm not selfish, you are. And in writing my fifth step and taking a look at these things, which is where I get my amends from, is my fifth step, I have to admit that I might be somewhat at fault. <laughs> right? That's difficult for me. I keep my nose as clean as possible so I never have to be somewhat at fault, right? I hate them in so much that I would just be like, yep, it's all my fault. <laughs> what can I do to make this right, right? Um, my ninth step is where I go to people and I have to take a really good look at, um, it's not my part, but it's the defects in me that start the thinking that happens that places me in a position to be hurt or hurt someone else, right? I have to acknowledge these things. Once I acknowledge these things, again, we get to the truth and the truth shall set you free. And then I remember God is everything or God is nothing, right? God is everything or God is nothing. I didn't like it when people said that when I was new because if God is everything, then that's terrible. God sucks, you know? But now I understand, like when I first got here, I used to say all the time out loud, God made a mistake when God made me and God made a mistake when God gave me my life. I'm getting a sign here. 
Okay. God made a mistake when God made me. God made a mistake when God gave me my life, right? I would say that all the time. And I felt and truly believed that I was a mistake. But you know what I found out through working the steps and getting to that 10, 11, and 12, which is where I'm connecting to God and I'm being present in what I am doing and how I'm showing up. Not just inventorying and send it to my sponsor, nothing like that. That's the 11-step inventory they talk about, you know, but being present right here, right now. I, I have made a mistake. I need to acknowledge this right now. I need to send them, I have made a mistake, or I need to go to them and say, I have made a mistake. How can I make this right? Because that way I'm not putting more baggage into my backpack of baggage and I'm not carrying it around. It ain't so heavy. Life is not so heavy, right? I get that connectedness in there. I get to start to show up to this world a little bit different. And then also I get to understand that, see, God was like, you see that little girl right there? Now, if you would ask me this 25 years ago, I would have said, yeah, God would have said, see that little girl right there? Let's pretend we got a video game up here. Got some quarters. It's called F up her life. Let's just drop quarters in and see what we can do. That's what I felt like I was living in, right? And today I really feel like it was, and I don't think that, that I'm special in this. I think every one of us, this is the way God sees us now, which makes me choke up. Because God looks and he says, you see that person right there? I'm going to allow them to have, an ex to, to ruin their life, cause a lot of pain, have some seriously bad situations happen to them that they didn't bring on. Because I have a trusted feeling that once they get their life together, they're going to use all of this to help somebody else get sober. See, God didn't hate me. God loved me and trusted me and gave me all of this. And it doesn't just stop. You know, it's not like I'm sober now. Hey, guys, it's been great. You know, last year was the hardest year of my sobriety. I feel like. I feel like, and that's my ego because I want to self-deprecate, right? I feel like I've reversed so much of my sobriety and I, you know, because I became afraid again. I, I went almost completely blind this last year from something called trauma cataracts. And you get those from being beaten as a child. And uh, within a matter of three months, I went almost completely blind. Felt like I was helpless, lost my job, lost, couldn't work. I mean, it was like a year long of, oh God, oh God, oh God. And I'm sitting there and I'm crying to myself in my living room and I have no money to pay for my eyes and I don't want to scare anybody because I'm the person that takes care of everybody else. I don't want to make anybody think that they're not going to be okay. So I'm just keeping my mouth shut. And now I'm almost completely blind. What am I going to do? And God, of course, had people bring a meeting over to my house and in the middle of the meeting, everybody shared, you know, and, and I led the meeting. And so after it was done, I was like, okay, we're done. We're done with this meeting. Right. You know, and they're like, no, why don't you share? And the topic was um, uh, authenticity and honesty. And I opened my mouth and just started sobbing and no one had any idea. They knew I was having eye problems, but no one had any idea how bad it was. Nobody. And they just were sitting there like looking at me as I'm sharing. I can't see anything. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to be blind soon. 
I'm going to be that old blind lady, you know, like it's cute in movies and this is not, you know, what I want my life to be. And, um, and God had people show up for me in a way that I've never had anybody show up for me because I don't want your help. And, and all I've needed was help. All I've had to do over this last year is ask for help. And I got to feel love. And I got to feel how important I am to God this past year. And I needed that because I'm an independent person who doesn't need your help. But clearly I'm just another human being who has a high opinion of herself when it comes to what my power is, you know? And now what am I doing? I'm working the steps again because there's, there's all this other stuff in my heart that's gotten chiseled out fears that were trapped in there, ideas that were chopped in there. And, and this fear chiseled this stuff out and now I'm insecure again. And now I'm feeling like, okay, what do I do? And all I can do is rely on God and show up and work the program. And so I've done one, two, and three, I'm on four again. Now we get to take a look at the things that are in my makeup, which I'm currently living my life by and see what works and what doesn't work and how can I become more effective in my sobriety and in my life by looking at these new things that were hidden and are now shown up, have now shown up. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love it because I have been restored to kind of a place in sanity, you know? Not insanity, but in sanity, <laughs> right? <laughs> And I know that so long as I do not pick up a drink, I'm gonna be okay. As long as God is there, my home group, which also is the Wild Bunch is there, you guys, I'm gonna be okay. And so are you. Thanks.